I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you very much indeed. Of course, as always, John, John Clegg, one of the stalwarts, of course, of the London Re- Review Bookshop. But perhaps tonight we call it the London Review EU Bookshop. It's quite hard to say, but perhaps it will do it collectively later. Um, not only are we part of a historic day, of course, 23rd of June, will re- we will remember this date for a long time. Some of us already know this date because today is Ken Walpole's birthday. Now, many of you are looking at me thinking, Ken Walpole, who he? And he is one of the crucial people who has sat at this very desk, a great writer, cultural commentator. Ken Walpole is 72 today. That is the first uh, date that I come to when I think of the 23rd of June. This will be the second one. Who knows what will happen, except say the storms have portended this day. Um, Nicholas Spicer, the publisher of the London Review of Books, was up all night deliberately to track the course of the storm. And he said that it rained without break for six hours. So that's a lot of rain, it's a lot of storm, it's a lot of lightning, it's a lot of portent um, before this event tonight. But of course, I don't mention Ken just casually, because some of you have never heard of him. But it's a strange synchronicity, I think, that he shares the second and third letter of his first name with the second and third letter of the surname of the writer that we're thinking about tonight. Walter Benjamin, of course, um, is the author of the month here at the London Review Bookshop. Um, he was a major player in uh, 2015's activities here at the shop. Um, uh, we have this wonderful page, in fact, uh, that was produced for us um, by the journal, marking all the books um, to that date that were easily available. And now, of course, there are at least two more to be added, of which this is the one that we're celebrating tonight, The Storyteller, Tales Out of Loneliness by Walter Benjamin, Sebastian, Esther, and Sam, the international person of mystery who remains in the audience undercover, potentially waiting to break ranks and, and uh, declare his commitment to this book. Um, it's a wonderful uh, delight to welcome all three of the makers of this extraordinary collection. We might, at the end of this session, ask what else is there in the Walter Benjamin untranslated collection? Um, and we will hopefully hear that answer. Um, but for now, we're going to set things up um, with Sebastian. Uh, and we're going to talk about the genesis of this book, of course, because for many of us, the idea that Benjamin was a storyteller in, 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 in quite a precise sense was, was a revelation uh, for those of us who don't speak in the original tongue, of course, a European language. Um, Sebastian, you come from Austria. You know what it means to be at the heart of Europe. Um, could you give us a sense of, of where this book came from? Sure. My original interest <coughs> was in... Um, 
Benny means radio work, which I was hoping to translate, and it transpired at the time that that was already being done, as it were. Um, and so I took to the uh, collected writings, started digging around for, for other stuff, just in a kind of a bid to uh, translate something, because, you know, as you've suggested, and as I hope we'll be able to discuss later, there is still a good deal that hasn't been um, touched. Uh, and I stumbled on a number of fragments in the kind of appendices to the seventh volume of the collected writings, which came out in 91, so really quite late, all things considered, <coughs> um, which included some fragments of short stories, novellas, and kind of aborted attempts at writing fiction, I guess, prose, which uh, hadn't been included previously, even though there had been volumes that dealt with, you know, Benjamin's um, literary critical writings and so forth. They'd been omitted, right? They were sort of written off as a juvenalia, marginalia, uh, and it struck me that it was curious that Benjamin had apparently not only theorized uh, you know, ideas to do with uh, storytelling, with narration and so on, not only produced a, a tremendous body of literary criticism, but apparently also attempted to stage or enact or perform uh, some of these ideas himself. Uh, and it was interesting to see that some of these works were amongst the earliest texts of his, certainly that I'm aware of. So really things from 1906, 1907. Bearing in mind, Benjamin was born in 1892, I think. So really early, early stuff, right? Um, then there is a, a really noticeable gap during which, to my knowledge, he uh, makes no attempts at writing fiction. And then he returns uh, to these efforts in the late 1920s after the uh, uh, ostensible end, well, in, in fact, you know, end of his uh, academic um, career after the rejection of his Habilitationsschritt in 1926, five, eight, getting my facts, uh, facts modeled here, right? Um, but yeah, it struck me as curious that, you know, there were these kind of efforts, right? And they were collected as sort of miscellanea uh, in, a, in a kind of an obscure appendix uh, amidst the uh, uh, editorial afterward of the final volume of uh, the collected uh, writings. And um, what's uh, doubly curious from a kind of a philological standpoint is that, um, you find uh, echoes, sometimes really verbatim, of uh, these stories built into, kind of montage-like, if you like, some of his more well-known critical writings. So the uh, story about the Hasidic village, for instance, right, recurs in the famous essay on Kafka, right? That's mm -hmm. one instance. No? Mm -hmm. um, but they seem to really enact, as I, uh, as I said, um, theoretical concerns that he had. Especially in the early stuff, I think there are early theoretical concerns to do with um, his uh, very um, interesting uh, notion of uh, fantasy. And I think this is born uh, out of his interest in, um, in Kant, his critique of Kant and neo-Kantianism. So really powerful stuff that is picked up in a different register elsewhere, right? Uh, this is not to say that these are the most uh, important or the most prominent um, aspects of Benjamin's you know, large uh, body and uh, diverse body of work. But they are curious nonetheless, and uh, they had never been grouped together uh, in the way that we um, propose to do here. So that was the, the original idea came out of simply wanting to, to give them a, a, a platform, a space to breathe. It seemed like they'd been kind of buried, and that was a, a shame, it felt. But they weren't even grouped in such a way in the German collected works, is that right? Yeah, indeed. I mean, some of them, some of them had. The very early, uh, the very early stuff uh, with which the book opens here, um, is, uh, th those are together. These texts right. are, are, uh, are together. But it seemed that even the editors made very little effort at trying to uh, make anything of this kind of curious fact that there are these uh, efforts at writing uh, fiction. It was kind of buried. They were written off as juvenilia. Well, here they are, and for sake of completion, we're going to publish them. But it seems to me that uh, there's more 
at work here. Mm. Does more at work here. Uh, it reflects in interesting ways on his theoretical work, as I say. Um, uh, and simply for that reason, it seemed to me uh, uh, a worthwhile exercise to excavate them and give them a bit of room to, to breathe. That's tremendous. Thank you very much for that, that great setup. Um, you'll notice, of course, Sebastian said 1925, 26, 28. That, of course, is a multiple choice question. And if anyone can answer that question before the end of the session, they can have uh, a signed proof copy of The Storyteller, by, signed, of course, by all three uh, makers of the book. Um, it seems the perfect moment um, to hear for the first time uh, one of the stories from the book. And uh, we're delighted, of course, among the very distinguished audience that you yourselves are, um, to welcome Flossie Draper to read uh, a story from the collection. And Flossie um, is Walter Benjamin's great-granddaughter. Please welcome Flossie Draper. Thank you. The Pipe. On a walk, in the company of married couple who were friends of mine, I came close to the house I was occupying on the island. I felt like liking my pipe. I reached for it, and as I didn't find it in its usual place, it seemed opportune to fetch it from my room, where I assumed it must be laying on the table. With a few words, I invited the friend to go on with his wife while I collected the missing item. I turned around. But I had barely gone ten steps when I felt, upon searching, the pipe in my pocket. And so it came to pass that the other saw me again, with clouds of smoke thrusting from the pipe, before even a whole minute had passed. Yes, it really was on the table, I explained, prompted by an incomprehensible whim. Something arose in the man's face resembling someone who has just woken from a deep sleep, having not yet worked out where he actually is. We walked on, and the conversation took its course. Somewhat later, I steered it back to the interlude. How come, I asked, you didn't notice? After all, what I claimed was impossible. That's right, answered the man, after a short pause. I did want to say something, but then I thought to myself, it must be true. Why should he lie to me? <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Um, we'll hear from Flossie later on uh, with two more stories. Uh, Esther, perhaps we could go to you now. And uh, Sebastian set the origin of the book up for us, but it's very clearly um, divided into discrete sections, which in a way is perhaps a, a surprise to, um, to a reader of Benjamin because he, he's a hybrid writer. He moves across borders. But there are clear concerns that he has around which the stories can be gathered, I guess. Yes, I, it took us quite a long time, really, to decide on those sections. And I think we felt we, we wanted sections to somehow order it. We didn't just want to put things in chronologically, although in, in some senses some, some of the sections fall into earlier <coughs> or later periods. It took a long time to clarify those things, and, and partly it was through a, a reference backwards and forwards between the kind of ostensible themes of the stories and the, the kind of theoretical strands that, that run through Benjamin's work, which was one of the reasons why in each section we also included at least one review to sort of show that, that movement between a, a, a fictional uh, creative... Uh, transposition of the theme 
and Benjamin's investment in it as, as a theoretical entity. So there's this, I think, really wonderful review of Tom Seidman Freud's play primer, which is sort of bringing out those themes of, of play with, with language that elsewhere Benjamin is enacting in his own creative works, and also in the creative works of others. There's a, another piece we have here where he's uh, notating the poetic play with, with given keywords that um, radio listeners and a, a girl that he knew in, engaged in. So there's also a sense in which it's giving voices to uh, other people's creative effort, efforts. But I think that those devices of dream world, travel, play and pedagogy were just ways of trying to cut into what in some ways is quite an amorphous content. And it's by no means to say that those things are tied up within those themes because they speak across each other as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, they, 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 they suggest various um, approaches to, to reality, shall we say. And, and Sebastian mentioned the idea that ideas were tested out in various forms, of course. He, uh, Benjamin was a, a working journalist as, as well as everything else. And so where do you think for him the stories sat in terms of their their role and importance for him working through his ideas? I mean, outside of their reception, you know, in the, in the public realm? I, I think, I mean, given that some of the earliest pieces in the book are from 1906, and then the, the later ones from the mid-1930s, effectively, you know, all through his adult life, um, Benjamin was thinking about storytelling, what it meant, what, what a story does. And in a sense, this comes to an apex in the early to mid-30s when, when he writes these two essays, Experience and Poverty, in which he talks about notions of the communication of experience through fable and fairy tale, and then picks up on that theme in his um, essay, The Storyteller, about Nikolai Leskov. Um, and there, I think, you, you see concentrated his idea of what, what the story does, as opposed to the novel, as opposed to um, the newspaper, as opposed, in some ways, or in relation to the radio broadcasts, which, of course, from the late 20s onwards, he's also engaged with. You know, what are these forms that owe their roots to oral cultures? What are these forms that aren't about the provision of information or, as he sees the novel, about the communication of uh, a pre-interpreted life? What, what are these forms that are open, enigmatic, passed from mouth to mouth, somehow connected to folklore and wisdom and um, craft? So I, I suppose, on the one hand, what one is seeing here is his practical experiments in, in form, and, and especially in the short form and in the strange marginal forms and anecdotal forms, which also picks up on all the things he says about Kafka or his interest in the <coughs> fantastical fiction of Paul Shearbart and, and other figures. So I, I think it's another way to, to enter into a whole complex that, that Benjamin is engaged in all through his life about what, what does it mean to experience and to recount experience, what is tradition, what is trans 
missable, what is communication, what happens under conditions of modernity in which communicability itself is compromised by, by the emergence of mass media, by the interventions, the punishing interventions of, of war and so on. So these are you know, essays in, in, in that sense of, of tryouts uh, for new forms of communication under conditions of modernity, I think. Thank you very much indeed. Perhaps we could take the idea forward, Sebastian, the idea of transmission, because, of course, these are translated stories, and you uh, were motivated at the very beginning of, that, of the project by that idea. What, what kind of language are we talking about here? What kind of German is Benjamin working in, in the stories, and does it pose particular challenges? Uh, yes, yes, I think it does. Um, I think the, uh, the important thing to remember is that you know, when one reads a Benjamin Storyteller essay from which the title of the book is drawn, one might, uh, uh, upon first reading, you know, gain the false impression that he's kind of nostalgically harking back to a time when communication, communicability, the impartability of experience was uh, possible in some kind of, you know, immediate, uh, immediate sense. This, I think, has to be qualified in the sense that the breakdown of communication that is brought about not least by, you know, the horrors of World War One and then uh, uh, other events uh, as well, the onset of modernity, shall we say. But these are uh, an occasion uh, for something to emerge out of the rubble, right? mm. the rubble of language, the rubble of uh, communicability, as it were, right? uh, such that, um, for instance, Kafka's parables assume a whole uh, other kind of uh, force by dint of the fact that they are written in an outmoded wantonly, in a sense, kind of anachronistic uh, fashion, right? And I think Benjamin avails himself of these sorts of um, techniques, shall we call them, right? Uh, they range across quite broad um, uh, spectrum. Uh, some of what he writes um, has uh, the kind of, um, if I say verbose erudition, that sounds derogatory, right? But, you know, long sentences, compound words, very German, right? Mm -hmm. Difficult to translate. Uh, and some of them are quite abrupt, quite curt, you know, they're quite uh, snappy. Something, um, what's the word, uh, uh, deceptively readable about them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but what's important is I think that they emerge out of a sense of ruination to some degree, right? Certainly after... Um, uh, the death of his uh, poet friend uh, Fritz Heinle and so on. There's a kind of a looming sense of uh, catastrophe which yet offers a, a sense of possibility, right? But uh, yeah, translating that can be hard. That can be difficult. I, 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 won't, <laughs> I won't lie. It can be quite troubling, yeah. Because you want to be true to the kind of uh, rhythms, to the syntax that carries forward this uh, sense of disquiet, right? Mm -hmm. That he must have... Uh, I mean, disquiet is too weak, right? The sense of um, uh, uh, catastrophe, I think, that he must mm -hmm. have... Um, uh, experience. Mm. Thank you very much. Um, Esther, this idea of, of translation out of, of you know, the kind of landscape that Sebastian has just, just described is, is striking. But the stories collectively are also gathered under the subtitle Tales Out of Loneliness, mm. which you know, one thinks of Benjamin in, in his own life, of course, um, on the move, uh, struggling to stay ahead of, of uh, destruction. But there's a, there's, a, there's a larger loneliness, cultural loneliness, isn't there, to do with the severance of the First World War and a certain mm. traditional way of communicating and telling mm. orally um, that he tries to recapture in some ways as well alongside this, this, this language that Sebastian's talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I'd like to 
read a, a double meaning in a way into the title, which was a title he gave um, one of his own stories or set of stories. But th this, you know, he, he's very emphatic that, that the novel is is a, a lonesome kind of form, written individually and consumed individually um, for the most part. So. Um, you know, that's a lonely form, whereas the story which um, begins in the marketplace with, with, with the teller or orally communicating, of course, is, is a collectivity, just as cinema will bring another form of collectivity and radio will bring a collectivity of listeners, but in, in different ways. And in a sense, I, I see these stories as both uh, marking a loneliness within which he exists and often the theme is is a strange sort of loneliness or of, of being say in in Ibiza or being on an island and meeting somebody else and not really quite understanding the language or the customs and trying to uh, work one's way around and being lost that that sort of loneliness as an experience but then to communicate it to another out of your experience to try to make it, in some sense, the experience of another is a way of trying to combat loneliness or at least perhaps share in the experience of alienation, which then opens it up to the possibility of, of becoming something different. So, you know, I think to, to tell the story is to, to both work with and out of and beyond loneliness. Thank you. I mean, that, that idea of, of working out of loneliness, Sebastian, is, is in a way a sort of gift to think about um, forms of communication with writers. And you mentioned Kafka in your response just now, and, and he, he really is a central figure in this. We can't understate that. So could you tease out a little bit more for us what, what Kafka means to Benjamin in terms of this collection? I suppose there are a number of... Uh points uh, which are largely to do with the sorts of themes that emerge in uh, uh, maybe the most prominent uh, piece that Benjamin wrote on Kafka, uh, which came out in 34, I think, to mark the 10th anniversary of uh, Kafka's death, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and uh, they are to do with tradition, with a kind of a breakdown of tradition and with the uh, possibilities of communicating experience precisely, right, that may or may not emerge out of that, right, what kind of possibilities uh, um, emerge in, through, and out of uh, language, right? Uh, which is something that harks back to his early language philosophical sort of uh, uh, reflections as well. Um, I mean, it's a very dense uh, piece. There's a lot of uh, themes that uh, point back to and uh, forwards, right, um, to, 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 other, um, uh, to other texts. But I think it is um, still to do with a sort of a sense of uh, a crisis of, uh, of uh, experience, right? Um, how this uh, relates to his uh, biographical sort of experiences, maybe of loneliness, you know, when he's uh, traveling and so on, one can only speculate, right? I mean, certainly there was a, a real sense of uh, loneliness that he may or may not have experienced when he was uh, in, the, uh, in, in Ibiza, for instance, right? When he was traveling, and he was traveling a lot around this time, he was a, a, a freelance author, you know, trying to forge a living in what were uh, undoubtedly quite precarious um, circumstances, I don't know that I could easily make the, the leap um, between the two. But certainly this, um, the sense of loneliness that he must have been experiencing around that time comes out strongly in the stories. For instance, if you think of uh, one of the pieces that's uh, retranslated, I have to say, in this uh, collection, sketched into mobile um, 
dust when he describes a lonely afternoon wandering around what appears to be a southern Italian um, uh, uh, city and the kind of strange experience that this uh, uh, brings about in him. I think it's about recasting the parameters of uh, um, experience, the concept of experience that we have and that may, for intellectual historical reasons, have appeared to him limited. Limited and limiting. It's about an openness to a different kind of uh, experience. We could call it a metaphysical one, shall we, for the time being. Something that is more, right? What can emerge from the rubble of experience, from the rubble of language that is more? Uh, I think some of that comes through in the stories that deal with his own uh, loneliness at the time, perhaps when he's traveling. The loneliness of the traveler I think mm -hmm. that captures it in some ways quite nicely. Thank you. Um, travels, the travel section, Esther, sits at the heart of the book. It's between part one and three. Um, part one is dreams and fantasy. Part three is play and pedagogy. And so I wonder if, if in creative, if not in chronological terms, learning out of that loneliness of travel that Sebastian talked about, he moved later with the advent of radio and, of course, the possibilities of radio broadcast that he was very committed to, to a, to a form of communication of those insights. And I wonder what, the, what your thoughts are around the technological possibilities of the new medium and how that changed what he thought about stories. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, to go back to the previous question, he picks up about Kafka is the sense in which Ka Kafka's writing seemed to be simultaneously dealing with a highly technologized and bureaucratized city and an absolutely ancient, um, eternal kind of past and, and this strange uh, sort of sitting the, the, between these <coughs> two worlds. We, we, and, I, and I think Benjamin sort of picks that up as well. I think he picks that up theoretically in that what, we, what continues to be enduringly fascinating about him is the way that he both anticipates the technology, um, mass media and its impact upon society, or all of those issues, while also speaking, in a sense, to much longer scaled and then sometimes mythical sort of questions of, of human uh, existence, or even non-human, mm -hmm. a-human, pre-human or proto-human experience. And, uh, which he also picks up in Kafka, that idea of Kafka, you know, in Kafka, the animals or stones could, could, could be sort of a gentle or optive within, within the stories. The question about, about radio, radio, the quality yeah, so of radio. Radio offers this sort of oral mode of communication, the possibility of reinventing the story. The, the, the radio period at the, at the time in Germany, in, in Weimar, was experimental and allowed for his... his ex his work in radio to, to play with sound effects and presence and absence and um, sucking the streets of Berlin and Frankfurt into the studio and sort of emitting them out to collectives of listeners and really having dialogues and, and, and working with, with, with the casting of, of a new form of address. But you know, at the same time, in, in this book, we, we have um, a translation of On the Minute, which is a very funny parody of, of his own failure to broadcast within the radio situation. And, and it reminds me, of, in a way, of how he talks about photography. Um, 
it, where, where the sort of the, the studio becomes a kind of torture chamber. It becomes the site of the deepest embarrassment as he he fails to broadcast, and there is only silence. And he he can, you know, sort of ironize that by standing both within the most modern, the most technological, the 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 most up to date, and at the same time the most ancient kind of terrors of, of, of the self can arise in that situation and plug us back into you know our most um, primitive sort of being and, and a whole sort of uh, history of, of humanity developing failing to develop going back to its origins and, uh, and so on so I think that's part of the power in a sense and as much as it's it's about exposure in the modern city to desire and lost chances and modern transportation it, it's also about very powerful sort of tonic um, drives and uh, fears around what what it is to be human to express oneself and and, and, and to even reach the point of being able to have language or communication mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Um, Sebastian, just before we go out to the audience, uh, on, on the uh, cover of the edition, there's a quote by John Berger, which, which reads, Benjamin was the interlocutor of all the demons and angels of storytelling, and this is why he knew its endless secrets. Listen to him. And if we think about Berger in terms of the English language, working with Benjamin as a key influence on the, uh, the image, of course, and the age of reproduction, but also ben, uh, Berger's own aspect as a storyteller, what kind of lineage do we find in, in the German language around Benjamin as storyteller? What kind of influence forward do we find, if there is one at all? That's a good question. I haven't really thought about that. Should we come back to that at the end? We can come back. We, we can hold that question. Maybe there's some suggestions from the audience. I don't know. Because language, of course, um, has very different uh, impact and, and influence, I guess, depending on the the, the, uh, the uh, language we're talking about. Maybe this is a good time to hear from Flossie again. It would be lovely to hear from you, Flossie, with your second story. Thank you. The No. I see myself in the Wertheim department store in front of a fat little box with wooden figures, such as the little sheep, just like the animals that made up Noah's Ark. But this little sheep was much flatter and made of a rough, unpainted wood. This toy lured me. As I let the sales girl show it to me, it transpires that it is constructed like a magic tile, as found in many magic boxes. These little panels are loose and shift, all turning blue or red according to how the ribbons are pulled. This flat, magical wooden toy grows on me all the more after I realize this. I ask the sales girl the price, and am most astonished that it costs more than seven marks. Then I make a difficult decision not to buy. As I turn to go, my last glance at it falls on something unexpected. The construction has transformed. The flat panel rises steeply upwards as an inclined plane. At its end is a door. A mirror occupies it. In this mirror, I see what is playing out on the inclined plane, which is a road. Two children run on the left side. Otherwise, it is empty. All this is under glass. The houses, however, and the children on the street are brightly coloured. Now I can no longer resist. I pay the price and put it about my person. 
In the evening, I intend to show it to friends, but there is unrest in Berlin. The Nazis are threatening to storm the cafe where we have met. In feverish consultation, we survey all the other ca cafes, but none appear to offer protection. So we make an expedition into the desert. There, it is night. Tents are erected. Lions are close by. I have not forgotten my precious treasure, which more than anything I want to show everyone. But the opportunity does not arise. Africa mesmerizes everyone too much. And I wake up before I can reveal the secret, which has in the meantime been fully revealed to me, the three phases into which the toy falls. The first panel, that colorful street with the two children. The second, a web of fine little cogs, pistons and cylinders, rollers and transmissions, all of wood, whirling together in one plane, without person or noise. And finally, the third panel, a view of the new order in Soviet Russia. Thank you very much. Um, just before we open out, Esther, the idea of uh, play prompted by the toy at the heart of that story. The idea of play in Benjamin is, is crucial. And, and of course, it comes in the third section along with pedagogy, but they're very different things, aren't they? And, and I wonder if you could just give us a sense of what, what play means. Yeah, I think in some ways for Benjamin, they're, they're not so different in that, you know, for, for, for him, play is, he, he imagines the child through play, breaking their way into, into the world, into the world of adult things, uh, breaking their way into the world of language, but distorting it, misusing it, using mishearings, all, all of that playful engagement with language, which will eventually be captured and tied down in ways that he doesn't um, necessarily find progressive. Um, play is... is very important to him, and he wrote about it in various essays. He wrote about toys, he uh, wrote about um, play and children's drama, and so on. But another way in which we engage the notion of play here was offered by the German notion of Spiel, Spiel, and Spieler, which is the gamble. And a couple of the stories are about gambling, which is another recurrent theme in in Benjamin, um, which feeds into all these questions around fate, um, around the, his sense of capitalism in, in a way as the, the stock exchange as a great kind of casino. So yeah. perhaps in some ways, you know, he's, he's working with a more contemporary notion of casino capitalism as well. So that's a, another resonance. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...there with, with the idea of, of play, which engages also questions about the body and intuition and whether the body 
um, in its efforts to predict where the red or black ball will fall in the roulette wheel, um, you know, the, the, the body's sense of this or um, a kind of precognitive sense of this ties us back into um, uh, forms of intuition that modern life has lost or, or buried in some way, as he argues elsewhere in on, on the mimetic faculty and, and those, those sorts of essays. So that, that's another way in which play mm. is engaged. Thank you very much. Um, wonderful to hear from you now. So yes, a hand at the back. Thank you very much. I was reading recently um, an interview with um, the Canadian short story writer Alice Munro, and she suggested that um, a relationship between the short story as a form and time, in that she said the reason why she writes short stories is because she wants to suggest that the story is, could potentially be still happening somewhere, as opposed to a novel having kind of a beginning and a middle and an end, or some kind of, I guess, possible completion. Um, and I was wondering, I guess, what you might think about a possible relationship between Benjamin's use of this short story and ideas around um, the messianic or yes site or any of the other relationships to time in his theoretical work. Thank you. I, I mean, I think Both of you, please, it's yeah. really an interesting question. In that, so I, I think Benjamin is of a very similar opinion in, in the sense that the, the novel is always about completion and you know, the man who dies at 35 will always have been the man who dies at 35. It's about rounding something off and for him it's about the reader, um, you know, the reader wants the death, either literal or some kind of figurative death within the no novel to, to close it off and precisely the short story, and some of these, I mean, short, they're really, really short, some of them, some of them are frag fragments, and that's maybe one reason why we chose to include fragments here. Some, in a sense, are literary, literally incomplete, but these fables, anecdotes, and short stories are incomplete because they are meant to be retold, ideally, in a sense. They're meant to be passed on and, and a variation comes. There's one of the review essays in here is about collect, coll a collection of children's rhymes uh, from Frankfurt School playgrounds and so on. And he talks about the ways in which uh, the children learn these rhymes or these jokes or, uh, from their parents, but they reforge them. And so, you know, that there's always variance. It's always moving on. And although, you know, he's written stories and, you know, they are what, what they are, there's still a sense in which he's working with, with um, notions of incompletion, of, of enigma, of kind of endings that aren't endings in a way, or, or which just open up other, other mysteries. So I think it does fit into that mm. sense of a sort of rolling, rolling. Yeah. I think it's hard to say with respect to the... Um reflections on the philosophy of history, like messianic time and so on. I mean, they do relate to each other, but kind of obliquely. But uh, in the sense that Benjamin, in his short stories, is trying to stage some of the theoretical concerns that he has with theories of narration, right? And uh, interruptions of a certain kind of continuity, if you like, they, they do speak to each other. But to tease that out, I think, uh, would, would require some, some work. Mind you, there have been good efforts to, to, to do that. There is a tacit kind of um, concern 
with the way that history, if you like, is narrated in the background uh, of these. But I, I, I wouldn't dare uh, make too far-reaching uh, claims here. But I guess Sebastian, following on from that, I mean, there's a question about you know the, the the nature of the German novel at this time. Of course, heavyweight novelists working on key key texts that would appear alongside Benjamin, of course, um, from Thomas Mann onwards. But just wondering how the story sits in 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 German at this point. The short story, the fragment, sits. What sort of status does it have, you know, in the larger culture? I mean, he's uh, setting himself off quite explicitly against uh, theories of the novel, right? But in particular against Lukács' uh, famous theory of the novel that was being widely read uh, around this time. I mean, I think Esther covered this uh, this nicely. I mean, maybe one might uh, say that he's modeling himself on uh, figures that he admired greatly. For instance, Paul Scherbach, right? So I think he's much more amenable to the form of a novella uh, uh, in his own writings. Uh, having said that, he has a lot to say. and in very interesting ways and for good reasons about uh, the novel. It's hard, to see, it's hard to say really why he decides to stick with these, uh, with these short formats. Huh? I mean, he's uh, got an ambiguous relationship to novels, I think, mm. as, uh, as such. And it does bear precisely on his thinking about history, but also language. I and mean, it's very difficult. You know, there's a lot of themes and they point in all manner of directions. It depends uh, how you'd want to bring them to bear on each other, these texts. I mean, that's partly the alluring thing about them. I mean, you have these... Uh, uh, suggestions, if you like, right? Uh, you can try to render them coherent, and people have, you know, from start to finish. And, uh, but it's playful, right? You, you try to rearrange these works, so to speak, to make them uh, speak to each other. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, are there any other thoughts or questions? Yes, gentlemen there. Thank you. You um, suggested a kind of binary between storytelling and information. And um, I wondered to what extent uh, Walter Benjamin uh, reflect or commented on the idea of modern news and uh, the mass media actually sort of using fairy tales or using fables, but sort of coating them with a kind of um, information, i.e. that we can recognize a lot of stories in everyday news that are in fact um, very old stories. I'm not sure that he, I mean, he talks about the mythic, you know, and, and sort of capitalism as the dream sleep that falls over Europe and there's a sort of reactivation of mythic forces within that. So if in a sense there is a fairy tale quality to our lives, it's almost, he, he seems to locate it less in news stories and more directly in, in the ways in which commodities entrance us or, or, or the, the spaces of, of shopping um, become fairy tale like and, and knock down our, our resistance and seduce us in in various ways. So I think for him, I mean I think he's very influenced by Karl Krauss's sort of very bitter sense of um, of media and what, what it comes to do, what it seems to be doing in the uh, 1920s, a sort of factory spewing out seeming information which in a sense is of nothing of the sort, you know, it, it, it seems to present itself in a sense as, as fact, but but it's not. And I suppose, I mean, to, to talk about how he fits into the German writing at the time, I think it would be interesting to think about these stories alongside new objectivity, the Neue Sachlichkeit of the 20s. And of course, in his Languid Melancholy essay, he's very critical of Erich Kessner uh, and, and the, the kind of fetish of the fact 
and, and reportage in a sense, which perhaps is falling into a trap of thinking that you can use a, a, a sort of stripped down, rational, sober language um, to communicate truth. And he'd much rather take the, the fantastic and fable-like uh, imaginative kind of form. Thank you. Um, yes, yes, I think, yes, gentlemen there. Uh, yes, thank you very much, yeah. Hi, yeah, I was just going to add to that, this idea of the fact that the last story we heard was, is, is a dream, and it was published in a newspaper, and how strange that is, that, you know, it sits next to what we would conventionally consider to be news or world events, and how then the dream is brought into a, a different type of, um, I don't know, historical space or something. So it's not just like the dream exists in a psychoanalytic session, or it's kind of a literary form that also sits as a historical event in itself. And yeah, I was thinking about that in the relation to mechanical reproduction and certain types of media. I mean, there's undoubtedly a kind of a interesting irony, I think, right, in the fact that Benjamin has such a scorn towards journalism and fiatonism and so on, right, in the SR crowds, but also elsewhere. And then the fact that he is... Uh, reduced in scare quotes, as it were, to publishing in such media, also to speaking uh, on the radio. There's a funny tension, right? On the one hand, does this mean that these are, in fact, new possibilities for uh, transmitting experience, as it were, you know, which maybe in his more optimistic moments he, uh, he may have underwritten? Or is this, as he tends to write to Scholem, you know, simply out of material pressures that he has to publish in the newspaper and, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's also terrible, right? Uh, is it a possibility? Is it a, a, a terrible imposition? It's it's often hard to uh, it's often hard to say. He certainly has to adapt his um, his his writing to suit uh, the media, which accounts for the diversity of his writings after a certain point. You know, uh, as opposed to the more strictly <laughs> academic stuff from the um, from the early twenties, for instance. But I was thinking about that that gap, in a sense, in the book when he's not really writing fiction, but that is precisely the period when he's working on that, the Denkbild kind of yeah, form, yeah. in a way, and so uh, contemporary parlance, a sort of creative non-fiction, isn't it, that he was, you know, he's doing um, travelogue kind of stuff, or writing up his drug experiences, and these things are being published in the proliferating media of Weimar Germany, and in a sense that desire for to, to evoke the dreamlike and the creative aspects can be captured in these experimental forms. And maybe it's once there's a, an end to that, that he, you know, once the Weimar media disappears, um, in a sense he has to, he starts going back towards um, fictional forms. Right. I mean, it's, it's good that you bring up the dreams because we didn't speak about them enough. I think the one thing that runs through uh, these writings consistently, right, and in fact through many of his writings, from early on right until the very end, is an effort to recast more widely <laughs> a concept of experience that is perceived to be uh, constricted, restricted, restrictive, right? Dreams, drugs, rausch, right? All this business is uh, something that kind of uh, explodes the parameters in which we ordinarily think our everyday uh, experience, so to speak. And the stories, I think, bear that out nicely in some respects. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, a couple of things have come out of, of the last couple of minutes, of course. Um, the, the breaking of a glass suggests that the, the place might erupt at any minute. 
um, which gives me a sense of timing, I think. We'll uh, keep an eye on that. Um, but more importantly, the, um, the enigmatic third person in the production operation, Sam Dolbear, raised the issue of dreams. So what we've just witnessed in the last couple of minutes is effectively an in-house conversation about the nature of the book that these three have produced. So we will be asking for an extra donation on the door as you leave, because you have witnessed something behind the scenes there um, of production. Um, thank you very much, Sam, for coming out of the shadows um, to bring dreams into the forefront of conversation. Um, are there any more questions? A gentleman there? Uh, yes, we've, we've talked a lot about, uh, uh, quite rightly, language. But um, the Benjamin essay, essay, The Storyteller, is very much about, I suppose, ancillary languages, uh, gesture, inflection, intonation, and that the, the art of storytelling takes place in a very physical context, um, whether it's weaving or tilling of the soil and, and, and so on and, and, and so forth. And I wondered if um, what he sees as uh, an essential part of, I suppose it's the art of storytelling in the age of artisanal reproduction, whether the things he so admires about uh, that um, older mode of storytelling can, can be recaptured uh, on the page. In a sense, I think they can't be recaptured on the uh, on the page. But I think I mean some of the stories here are these sort of <coughs> origin myths. You know, how did the elephant get its name? I mean, these are clearly things that are meant to be performed. Um, and I think what he tries to do within the page is to have a variety of voices, and it's people telling stories that they heard from another. And and so, in as much as it's possible within a a, a written-down narrative to have this sort of polyphonic set of, of uh, perspectives going on. Certainly that happens in some of the stories and we got in quite a tangle with our um, quotation marks and so on, particularly in one story about who was speaking at, at what point. So that and all of that is a, a certain type of gesturing or acknowledging of, of different levels and, and a, different people within the story having different types of, of knowledge. But yes, certainly this is not, uh, this doesn't come from the, the potter's shed. And, and the, you know, in, in the storyteller essay, he talks about really how there are only two, two types of people who tell stories. It's the, 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 the journeyman or master craftsman who's come from far away, who has experiences from abroad to relate, and then the person who knows their town very well and knows all the local folklore and so the combination of, of these will, will bring stories and he has to find ways to sort of emulate that I suppose through his own travels but then those travels are often about not, not knowing and not being able to bring something with you but having to divest yourself of knowledge um, and locality becomes barred to him that, um, at a certain point, or, or, or in some sense, you know, he's someone who's always on the move, even when he was younger. So that that sense of, of being at home is um, is not necessarily something he shares very deeply. Yeah. And if I can just add to that real briefly, uh, I mean, language uh, occupies a kind of a difficult, qualified uh, place in Benjamin's work anyway. Right? And if you think back to the famous uh, 1916 essay on language as such and on the language of man, as man, where man inherits, in a sense, in a 
peculiar uh, kind of way, you know, the creative power of uh, naming, right, uh, with which he then imbues uh, things in the world so that there is a language of things to which you are not always attuned. Language does not always mean language in the sense of, you know, the written or the spoken word. I mean, certainly in the storyteller, I say that's uh, his concern, uh, concerned with the transmittability of an oral tradition. Language is a kind of a nodal point, I think, in Benjamin's work more generally, and it doesn't always mean the language of man, if you like. There's a language of, su uh, as such, pure language, as he, uh, as he calls it, which he's trying to gesture towards uh, through a lot of these writings, which is what makes these uh, uh, linguistic experiments, shall we call them, uh, quite interesting in, in that respect, perhaps, uh, as well. But again, I don't want to say too, too much. There are better qualified people to comment on this. Thank you all very much. Yes, we'll go to, to the woman here and then we'll come over here. Thank you. Uh, just to follow on from that, I guess, then, my question is, um, how does calling these stories affect the way that we consider them? And um, if they were called anything else, I mean, I guess I want to know what you think the implications of that would be. So could you say that again? I didn't hear. Yeah, so what is the kind of significance of us thinking about these as stories, as kind of being named as that? And um, what's the kind of implication of that? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because in, in the storyteller, you know, it's called De Ed Sailor. It's about Ed Sailor, which is not the same as a Geschichte, a, a, a sort of that which has happened. It's more about the telling of them. So in a sense, maybe they should be called short tales, perhaps. That would have a very different resonance. He says very scornfully, short story in English, right? In the original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yes, there are issues about... Um, naming, I suppose, and I mean, it, it's just a convenience in, in a way, isn't it, for us to call them short stories. Although I like the way it echoes the notion of kind of tall stories, that sort of, the, <laughs> which would kind of be the opposite, but a lot of them, they might be little, but they're quite tall in a way, because they're <laughs> ridiculous in, in part. Brecht, Brecht makes a, has a few sort of walk-on cameo roles in these stories, and I'm curious about the way, what you could elucidate about Brecht's, whether, whether Brecht has influences his own as a storyteller himself on Benjamin's way of telling stories, or do you think that they are just two very, very sort of different storytellers and their influences are, are of a different order? I mean, for me, I think that probably the most Brechtian ones are some of the, the, the very uh, short ones, like the, the Warning, which is about uh, suicide. Um, there, there's a very ironic. Um, uh, presentation. Or the, the, there's there's one about a, a, a seemingly docile bank clerk who actually turns out to be a, a thug. And that for me, that I think they, I and they're written in the 30s, sort of after quite hefty engagement with with Brecht. And they sort of remind me a bit of um, pushing towards perhaps uh, Brecht's anecdotal, ironic, but also slightly. It's not quite. It's not his di didacticism, but it's, you know, sort of learn modello, sort of something about a kind of learning within them. So I think, yeah, un undoubtedly there's that um, uh, relationship between them, and I'm sure they, um, or even perhaps, you know, maybe something like Brecht's um, made to his sort of parody of um, the, the intellectuals, you know, the, the, you can see them sitting within that same kind of uh, parable-style universe, the sort of way that Frederick Jameson engages Brecht in that other, other book. 
statistical Grafton method. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. Uh, I mean, it's noticeable also when you when you read the German. It's a little bit like the Herkoiner aphorisms or something, mm -hmm. right? They're much more abrupt. They're quite curt. Yeah, they're not as uh, verbose as I uh, suggested earlier. Some of the early stuff, which was obviously still, I think, uh, um, impacted much more by this interest, this kind of neo-romanticism, this rediscovery of a kind of romanticism that was prevalent in the early 20th century that Benjamin was definitely uh, impacted by. By the time of the 30s, he will have, I think, uh, modeled his writing, I think, explicitly, actually, on Bray. Yeah. Choppier, you know? And if you compare his version of The Wish to Ernst Bloch's version of the same story, they're so different. Bloch's is so verbose, he goes all over the place and sort of loses the point, really. Whereas Benjamin's one is, is just so direct, there's such an economy of, of words, and yet it has the maximum of, of intrigue. And I think one also shouldn't forget, um, Benjamin was reading, this has come out in this recent Edmund de Waal exhibition, I think, in Berlin, or somehow connected around that, Benjamin's fascination with detective fiction. And he was reading tons and tons of genre fiction. So, you know, he, he, that, that's also an influence. Comes out sort of quite nicely, he's shown his masterful knowledge of of all this stuff in a nice review in here. Oh, it's not quite a review, it's a sort of thought piece on uh, detective novels when you're riding on a train and how the, the story of different types of um, criminal fiction feeds into and, and plays with the rhythm of the train journey. Comes from the arcades, quite a lot of detective stuff, something I didn't think of when we were writing the uh, introduction. Yeah, so I'm interested in the, in the relationship between I guess his his stories and his more non-fictional philosophy, and whether you you kind of think he saw his, his the kind of stories more as a release from maybe the iron cage of Marxism, which he struggled with sometimes in terms of making what I guess his more creative and more unorthodox ideas on on um, history. Uh, sometimes he struggled to fit that into into what Marxism was and, and where people were driving, and sometimes that was out of alignment where, with his ideas. And whether he maybe he, he liked the autonomy of, of fiction in some ways as a kind of counterbalance. I, I mean, because his his Marxism is so very in itself creative and unorthodox. I don't think he submits to it in the way, say, that a Lukács or a Louis Aragon or you know someone who sort of renounces um, uh, their their previous sort of more experimental modes and, and becomes more dogmatic. I, he, he, you know, he, he never deals in dogma. So I think, I mean certainly it's, it's a more evocative realm and presumably, you know, m most of his work, much of his time is spent sitting in libraries, reading, copying out quotes, trying to work it all out not necessarily, you know, finding, being able to write it all up, or he writes it all up and, yeah, Adorno says, no, sorry, you got it wrong, go back to the drawing board and get your mediations right and all of that. So in a sense, I, there's a release, I suppose, from, from that. But at the same time, I still see it as the same kind of speculative <clears throat> space in which you know, he, he just wants to discover the, the, the wellsprings of human motivation interaction, questions of passion, questions of sociality, and so on. I mean, they, they, the theoretical writings and the fictional writings reflect on each other in 
complicated and interesting ways. It depends on which piece we're talking about and how it might bear on any of the writings that appear in a more theoretical, more academic, shall we say, register. But these are connections that I think are are yet to be made. You know, for now there's the uh, there's the pieces. Like I say, you know, there are some obvious philological clues. You know, there are phrases that are repeated verbatim in some of the stories that then come up in some of the uh, uh, larger published tracts that deal with, for instance, Kafka, who's come up a few times. Um, but uh, to really work that out, I think that's work that remains to be done. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I do have one more question before we move to a close, which is about the um, images in the book. We haven't talked about that at all. Um, throughout, the book is uh, generously illustrated by the work of, of Clay. And in 1921, of course, Benjamin famously uh, brought the drawing Angelus Novus, which then became the angel of history and, and with all the implications that come from that. But could you just uh, talk a little bit about the choices that you've made around Clay as a kind of visual correspondent with the stories? One of the interesting things about publishers is that... <laughs> Once you've alienated your work from them, they, they make their own decisions. Uh -huh. And, and we, we were at first rather sceptical about the clay because we had some ideas from all sorts of postcards and other types of images. But it must be said, we thought the, um, the way in which individual pictures were, were placed is, is quite stunning. That's suitable, Really, yeah. really <laughs> thoughtful um, juxtapositions. And they are lovely, lovely pieces. So it was not... Mm. Deliberate. It, it makes. I mean, it was not our choice. It was Verso and 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 their production department's choice. Um, uh -huh. But you know, it it works. Benjamin loved clay. He saw clay's work as some somewhere between drawing and and writing. And so I think in that sense, it it locates that that way in which. These stories are like like the Denkbit form itself, so densely imagistic and 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 just suggestive and incom incomplete in in in, in that mm. sort of way. So yeah, that that came upon us. I mean, mind you, the uh, relationship between uh, or Benjamin's reflections on clay and on his generation of artists working in the kind of German-speaking uh, sphere. Uh, is, I think, relatively under-theorized and really quite interesting. So he had fascinating things to say about the Blauer-Reiter group and mm. so on. His uh, time in Munich as a student will have definitely left a mark on him in that respect. I mean, his uh, art, theoretical or art historical reflections, I think, are underappreciated. There's a book that we quote in the introduction by Hans Brüggemann, a German scholar, uh, on, called, uh, I forget the title now, but it, it's loosely translates as something like Benjamin not play, color, and fantasy. And in that respect, I mean, his interest in someone like Clay does open up interesting possibilities for trying to uh, reconstellate and connect, you know, the, uh, uh, the the fictional writings, the interest in fantasy, and so on. And then his uh, passing, one has to say, I guess, interests in the visual uh, visual arts around 1913 mm -hmm. to 1920, something like this. So it, there's also work to be done there that I think would be quite a, could be quite interesting. Tremendous work to be done visually, of course, but um, what else is there, as I asked at the beginning, um, to be brought over into English? And will it be done? Sebastian, Esther, either of you, both of you. I mean, there's quite a lot of stuff that hasn't been translated in the uh, uh, collected works. I mean, to those of you who, who, who are interested or who read German, right, uh, you, you may be aware that the... Um, 
standard edition of Benjamin's collected works uh, in, in, in German is about to be overhauled, as it were, by a new critical edition, which is much more complete. Uh, so there are things still surfacing, drafts and so on, that uh, are kind of archival materials that may not be familiar to even those of us who have been reading the published uh, German editions for however long, since uh, I mean, the first edition of Benjamin's selected writings came out in 55. Uh, there are many reviews, conversations, interviews, and so on that haven't been translated. They're coming out bit by bit. I mean, I, I have to say, uh, as far as these things go, the selections, but it sounds so presumptuous on my part now, but the selections that were made for the selected writings at Harvard do are, are pretty good choices as far as I'm concerned. I mean, this is a, an interesting representative sample of what he's, uh, he's up to. There is still stuff. It's hard to say how or if or when it might uh, be translated, if at all, simply because there's, uh, I can't think in any obvious sense how they might be grouped, right? right. I think book reviews. I think there, there could be a lot more interesting work on his reviewing and, yeah. and general sort of journalistic practice. Because one mm -hmm. of the interesting things is, I mean, you know, the, ra the radio work was available in, in German, but it, it wasn't grouped together and then you know a brilliant idea to to put it into a volume in English and suddenly you know it becomes a thing and it really changes the way one thinks about him and I think that's, that's worked back on Germans who now realize ah there's this really interesting thing yeah. about Benjamin yeah, right. so you know the so the the new collected works in Germany will approach that stuff differently yeah. and you know maybe in some way the fiction might be something like that but I definitely think all those practices around reviewing and foyer and so on um, could could be focused upon you know because sometimes it's not just about retranslation it's about the, the grouping things and a representation and you know and this mm. this speaks uh, very much to Benjamin who was always much more interested in the afterlife of materials rather than their their genesis so yeah, yeah I mean there's so many different approaches to Benjamin I mean, it's hard to say it depends what you're trying to tease out mm -hmm. you know on the very scholarly end you have a kind of a sustained effort to try and uh, present Benjamin as a as a philosopher, as a philosophical thinker, right, which focuses on the stuff up until the origin of the German uh, morning uh, play, and there's a lot of uh, fragments that are collected in, in in the in the German as kind of fragments on aesthetics and so on that haven't been translated and which are absolutely crucial, I think, to understanding his uh, his his early concerns. It depends what you are trying to tease out, what you're trying to emphasize. You know, as as Esther said, the media theoretical stuff, the radio things in German also hadn't been widely theorized. I mean, there were some pretty scholarly efforts in the 80s to try and group that stuff, but it never really took off in any big way. So yeah, certainly one can regroup, reconsolate, and represent, as it were, depending what you're trying to get out of this uh, diverse and uh, still kind of fragmentary body of work. Sure. Tremendous. Well, obviously Radio Benjamin with Verso, the storyteller with Verso. Uh, Verso have just received a huge shout of endorsement around their choice of images. There are representatives of the publisher in the room tonight, so let's just remember that possibly book reviews. Uh, could be something to look at. Rowan. Um, wonderful to have you all here. Before we formally close, I'd like to welcome Flossie back for the uh, final reading. Thank you. The warning. At a place famous for day trips, not far from Qingdao, there was a section of rock which stood out on account of its romantic location and the steep cliff walls that dropped off into the depths. This wall of rock was the destination of many love-struck men during the happy phase, and after each had admired the landscape, arm in arm with his girl, they would stop for a bite to eat. 
accompanied by the same, at a nearby restaurant. This restaurant was doing very well. It belonged to Mr. Ming. Then one day, a lover who had been abandoned got the idea of ending his life in exactly the same place where he had enjoyed it to the fullest. And so, close to the restaurant, he flung himself from the rock into the depths. This inventive lover found imitators, and it wasn't long before this section of rock became as equally renowned as a place of skulls. Through this new reputation, though, Mr. Ming's establishment suffered. No cavalier dared to take his lady to a place where he had to be prepared to see an ambulance arrive at any time. Mr. Ming's business got worse and worse, and there was nothing left for him except to think out a plan. One day, he shut himself in his room. When he re-emerged, he went promptly to the nearby electricity station. After a few days, a wire appeared, stretched along the outer edge of the romantic section of rock. A board hanging from it bore the words, Danger! High voltage! Risk of death! <laughs> Since then, those contemplating suicide avoided this area, and Mr. Ming's business flourished as it did, as it did in former times. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.